This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game before we get into any other business we got a new member of the crew we have to welcome it is the first i think this is the first podcast we've recorded since the birth no. of kyle's second child did we bring it up did i bring it up on the last one uh when we were on with liz benz we talked about it got it well whatever I'm gonna, it doesn't I'm gonna matter keep we're bringing just gonna, it up for the rest yeah. of the month june is the month of jackson Hauk. so yeah let's go he's chilling he's uh Sleeps a lot during the day. He's, I mean, he's all right during the night, honestly. Like, I mean, every two to three hours he gets up, but it's nothing, nothing crazy. I'm learning how to function on like four hours of sleep. So here we are. How's, uh, how's Nash doing with the diversion <clears throat> of attention from him to the baby? Yeah. Um, you haven't caught t- him like t- with a pillow over his face yet. <laughs> no, you know, tough, tough at first, but, um, he, I mean, he's really, he's really excited. He's in the stage right now. He's three. So he, like he's, he's in his independent stage where he thinks he can do everything by himself. So he really wants to hold the baby by himself and feed the baby by himself. I'm just like, dude, no, you can barely like walk through the kitchen without dropping your freaking Cheerios on the floor. Like <laughs> we're not doing that. So that that's been the only challenge other than that. He's been great, man. He, um, he says he's he says he's so cute all the time, which is pretty funny. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's been um, it's been good. It's been tiring, but good. Good deal. Well, listen, I want us to get cranked up. We've got mm-hmm. a great guest that was introduced to me, named David Nagel. He's from Life Is Now, and we're going to chat a little bit about what he's doing to help people like you and I. Sweet. So he, I don't know few thousand tens of thousands listening just like us right now so see how many people we can help with this podcast mr nagel welcome to power producers before we get too deep into what you're doing today why don't you sort of give us your backstory and how you got to where we are right now then we're going to take it take off and run with it okay so in the in the late 80s they found myself out of work i was selling life insurance for metropolitan life And during the savings and loan crisis, uh, people were dropping their policies left and right. I had just gotten started working for them. 
I was doing I was doing okay, uh, but it was my first sales gig. And then uh, when that crisis happened, I was I found myself out of work, just completely out. Now I was a high school dropout from seventeen on. All I did was work, so I really didn't have any other skills other than being able to drive a truck or drive a forklift. And I found myself working on a dock after that. I had gotten married young, had two children, and I was quickly uh, not able to live up to the responsibilities that I created for myself. And if things were progressively getting worse really quick, woke up one morning, car was repossessed, couldn't mm. pay our bills. The phone was constantly ringing off the hook, getting nasty letters from creditors. We tried to uh, get into a smaller apartment and they wouldn't let us out of our lease. We had to leave in the middle of the night and go to um, get a get a U-Haul and move like 60 miles away to some place that was really nasty. We were living next door to a drug dealer uh, because we didn't have any money. So I was really working on trying to figure out how do I get my income from 20,000 to 40,000? That was, I thought that was the, how to fix the problem at the time. And I couldn't figure it out, but things were getting really, really bad. And then after about a year and a half of this, I just had a breakdown one night on the on this dock and I was crying in the back of a trailer. I, I came into work, I got in trouble twice. My attitude was terrible. Um, I wasn't taking responsibility for anything. And in the back of this trailer, I was like, God, please show me something. I, I don't know what to do. I have no idea how to get out of this situation. You know, I realized I probably shouldn't have quit high school, but I need to get, figure something out. And this voice in my head said, change your attitude. And to make a long story short, I picked this guy that was that started the company that I worked for. I worked for the largest food importer in the United States who started the company out of his garage. And for some reason that I kind of related to him. I grew up on the streets of Chicago. We, you know, we, we used to hustle little businesses and stuff when we were teenagers. And I thought, what's the difference between this guy and me, right? Like he starts out of his garage. How the hell did he get to where he is? And I thought, well, he must have loved what he did. And I hated what I did. He must have done everything in a, like the quality of his work must have been fantastic. And I was constantly getting in trouble for mine. But I was really working to go home, not not working for the, the quality of what I was doing. And then I noticed something that that when I grew up, it, it was the kind of the antithesis of what I heard about successful people. This guy had one of the first automated warehouses. It was almost completely fully automated. And all kinds of different CEOs and business people would come as to it for a tour of this place. And when he would walk through, they're all in their expensive suits and everything. He would never walk past an employee without acknowledging them in some way, say, how you doing? How's your family? 85% of the guys in the warehouse didn't even speak English. And it did, I mean, he would stop and talk to them anyway. And I thought to myself, that is not what I've heard about successful people growing up, right? I heard that they were all jerks and con men and you know they you know they hated the worker and just all kinds of negative stuff and i thought he treats people with respect and i don't so there were those were those three things and and literally i said to myself i'm going to make a commitment i am going to try changing these three things in my attitude and see if it makes any difference and i'll try for a year and see if, if anything comes of it so it was act like i love what i do do everything to the best of my ability treat people with total respect 
In 30 days, my income went from 20,000 a year to 62,000 a year, just by changing those three things. And I thought, what the hell happened to me? I didn't even know anybody making 60,000 a year. Nobody in my family did, right? This is like 1990, 91. And uh, so I started, I was like, I got to figure out what I did. Everybody kept telling me it was luck. And I'm like, I know that there's something else going on here, but I need to understand what it is so that I can duplicate it. So I started reading. I started, uh, I went, I got Tony Robbins' personal power tapes back in the day when he first released them. Um, I started going to seminars. I eventually got a mentor around 96. And I started off driving a truck for a fuel company. And seven years later, when I left, I was in charge of expanding that company across the country. And then I started my own business in 1999. So it's been 24 years that we've been in business, helping people uh, become better salespeople, better business people. We primarily work with small business owners. But everything changed that day in that trailer when I started to change the way that I was thinking. And then after that, I began to change the skills to back up uh, the, the positive attitude. So it was... It was just a trajectory. Everything like I cannot emphasize how fast it changed, which was which blew my mind. The speed in which it changed blew my mind. I didn't know you could earn money that fast. I didn't know you could change your income that fast after struggling for years. How is it that in a month something like this could happen? And then it just kept getting better and better. Once I went into business for myself, <clears throat> I went from fifty thousand a year to fifty thousand a month to over a million in a in a very short period of time. And like I said, we've been in business 24 years uh, and we help people all around the world in small business. So how did that lead you to start what you're doing today? Like why, why take the plunge and, and make it your mission and responsibility to go help others? Well, what happened was that there were certain people that started seeing how much success I was having on my own. And, they, and it was causing questions in their mind. And they would pull me aside, like when nobody was looking, they're like, dude, what are you doing? Right? How is it that you're able to buy this house? How, how, how are you able to do these things? How are you climbing the ladder in this company like this? And I would say, listen, I don't, all I can tell you is what I've learned so far. And I started teaching them about setting goals, about having a positive mindset. I started teaching people how to sell, just small, basic skill sets. And the ones that would listen to me, they would turn their lives around also really fast. I got a mentor in 96. His name was Bob Proctor. Worked with him for seven, eight years. We had a, we had a company together at one point. Um, and it, it just, I got introduced to a totally different group of people that were actually interested in having, in being successful. I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood where nobody was really interested in being successful. They were just interested in complaining about life. You know, so I got around different people. People saw what I was doing. They wanted to know why it, it created curiosity in them. And I started helping them. At that point, I was just helping people for free. And I thought I could, I could start a business. I could do a business with this. What would you say is the biggest mistake that you've seen salespeople make? They come to you, they're maybe not having success. Is there a common theme that you see with people? <clears throat> Well, one of the biggest things is that they don't believe what they're doing. Um, th so one of the things that I teach people is this, that, I mean, outside of all the great habits that you want to develop as a, as a, um, a salesperson, it's very difficult to influence somebody else when you can't influence yourself, right? So 
um, you you are influencing another human being. And if you cannot, if you can't give yourself what you want in life, it's very difficult to do that for another individual. So one of the things that we work with is belief. And how do you how do you uh, create influence in a in another person, and not have what we call a double binding mess, message, which is you know from a verbal perspective you're saying one thing, but from an energetic perspective you're setting off alarm bells in the people that you're talking to, because either you don't believe it or you think you're doing something wrong or you don't deserve it, uh, any of those types of things. Makes sense. Yeah, I think. You know, you bring something up interesting, though. I'm, I want to go back to something you talked about in terms of how you, you watched the guy that was perceived to be successful take his time out of his day to go around and just talk to people, right? Yeah. As the leader of the organization. And, you know, I'm not the smartest dude in the world. I ran, I ran grocery stores for a number of years before I got into the commercial insurance game, but I got promoted to a store one time that had significant turnover issues, significant shrink issues from an inventory standpoint, both employee theft and otherwise. A lot of discrimination problems um, surrounding the culture and the operation and everything else. I mean, it was just, I was set up to fail from the second I had that job. Like I was told by the RVP, they gave me that job. We're promoting you because we don't think that you can make this store any worse than it already is. That was how I went into it. And what I found was that people appreciate and receive pretty good bit of motivation just from that simple action. Literally walking around, having a normal conversation, letting it build, right? So if you ask, if I, if I would ask about how the kids are doing in sports, they say, well, funny enough, Johnny's got a game tonight. I'm going to make a mental note of that. And tomorrow morning, hey, how did Johnny do in his game last night? Right. Yeah. And it seems like really basic blocking and tackling. But here's <laughs> here's what I know. It was probably a whole lot easier to pull that off, at least in our own minds, prior to the technology we have today versus what we do today. Technology has forced us to disconnect to, to a certain degree. Um we want to go that path because it's easier. We laugh about it, but my wife, I mean, it, but it's really not funny. There are times my wife and I are in messenger threads online, literally on sitting, our laptops. Sitting next, in the same, yeah. yeah in, in bed, uh, in our laptops or sitting, sitting across memes. the living room, right? Yeah. But I go back to that and I rem it, it just, it blew my mind <laughs> how, much, how much of an impact I could make on somebody by noticing they got their hair done yeah. by noticing that, you know, maybe they just they, being a decent person. That's it. Like, yeah, just having conversations. And I think the problem is leaders are so focused on what they think they should be doing from a profit and loss standpoint that they don't realize that productivity is a huge component of that. And you can, Absolutely. Enhance, you can enhance productivity dramatically by simply making the investment in the people that are on your team. And I, I look at it this way. In every relationship in life, you have an emotional or relational bank account that you have to make deposits into. Mm -hmm. Too many times we operate with overdrawn accounts because we're not taking the time 
to make those investments and those deposits. Mm-hmm. I look at it very similarly to the insurance agent versus the underwriter relationship right now. We are nationwide. Florida is its own animal, always has been, probably always will be. But nationwide, we are in the hardest and in, in, in getting harder every day. We're in the hardest insurance marketplace many of us have seen in our entire careers. And I've been at it for 20 years. And there are a lot of agents out there. And as I travel the country and speak, this is one of the things that I talk about. There are a lot of agents that are going to need favors that have don't have a balance in that in that relational bank account because they don't take the meetings with the marketing reps from the carriers because they're too busy to give them time. They don't take time to invest in their relationship with their underwriters. They simply send them submissions and expect results and hope that they can buy in business. The people who are going to come out of the hard market smelling like a rose are going to be the people who took the time when it was the gravy train to still invest and make deposits into those relational bank accounts. That's who's going to win when the underwriter has to make a decision, right, right, wrong or otherwise. That's how it goes down in the real world. And I think that, you know, people need to be paying attention to that. Something so simple can have such a profound impact on results. When, when I was working with my mentor in the late 90s, early 2000s, he kept drilling into my head because technology was changing, but he kept saying over and over again, David, I'm telling you the key to success is personal contact. Don't ever forget that. Never forget it. He said, because where this is, like he was, I don't know where this is going. He said, but the key is personal contact. Human beings are still human beings. And they will respond differently right? To you being in person or as, as in person as you could possibly be building those relationships. And I've never, I've never let go of that truth. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's why I've always liked doing the marketing drops in person versus just giving somebody a call on the phone. I mean, it's kind of what I grew up in the sales industry doing. And so I have a level of comfortability with it, but it's also like you just mentioned, it's something that has a much more profound impact when you can have a conversation with somebody in person, shake their hand and, and just, just be normal. It doesn't feel fake. You know, you're, you're there and, and you're um, able to pick up on different, you know, body language things or tone or, or whatever, just things around you in the, in the room. I don't think that that'll ever go away or not be effective. You know, the other thing is if you if you just keep in mind, how can I help this person and, and quit thinking about the sale itself, really focus in on what could you do for this person, um, it totally changes the energy of, this, of the entire situation. And that people know whether or not you're sincere in that aspect or not. You know, people know if you're trying to get something without, without actually being a benefit in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean... Again, taking the time, having the conversation, looking at somebody, making eye contact with them so they know you're listening. Yeah. It's it's not like I just pushed a shopping cart as I was, you know, cleaning off where people had put stuff back in the wrong places on the shelves. It was a genuine conversation. And it was something that typically took me between an hour and an hour and a half to do every day because I would have to go through multiple departments in the store, talk to multiple people, make sure I talk to the people in the back. And all of that. And I I really, you know, the other thing is, and this is, this is a habit that I still have today. I didn't, to me, I hope that I don't ever say it so flippantly that it comes across 
that I don't mean it because I truly do. But simply thanking somebody for a day's work at the at the end of their day, it, it blows my mind, man. I mean, my wife and I have had um, several businesses outside of what we do for a living. I mean, we didn't grow up on the streets of Chicago, but we know a little something about side hustles. You know, we don't <laughs> yeah. we, we we know how to make some coin on the side if we need to. And every single time we would have people work in our operation at the end of the shift as we were paying them. Hey, thanks. Really appreciate your help today. And we mean that. I didn't realize how much it meant to the people who hear it, though, until we had a lady who moved away and she wrote this long post on Facebook about how much she was going to miss working with us and being part of our team and how much fun she had. But the one thing that meant more to her than anything else that the entire five-year time that she worked with us, there wasn't a single day that she worked that I didn't stop and thank her for what she did that day before she left. And she said, I know that David meant it when he said it because he looked at me and he thanked me very specifically for what I did and told me how important I was to everybody else being successful. That's not something that's hard to do. You just have to be willing to do it, right? Right, yeah. Absolutely. Um, the The world seems to be filled with a lot of people that are business owners that think that the world owes them something, you know, and it doesn't. Uh, you're working for them. It, that's my view, right? I've owned this company and I've always viewed that I'm working for the people that are with me and as a team and where we're going, you know. Um, but you're absolutely right about just showing appreciation. Appreciation goes a long way and be sincere about it for sure. I was just going to ask if you have like a target demographic that you work with, or is it all relatively general sales stuff? What's that look like? Well, the demographic is really small to medium business uh, around the anywhere between 35 to 45 year old uh, individuals and who've been in business for five years or more. So we, we come in where They've, they've really come in and started cranking out on their own and then they get stuck. And then we go in and help them move past that, you know, whether they're going from 5 million to 10 million or maybe a little bit above that, sometimes the mm-hmm. nine figures, depending on where they, depending on where they are. Uh, we want people that are seasoned a little bit. They know how to make money. They're not afraid to make the sales. They're consistent in, in what they're doing. Because that's one of the biggest issues is that people lack the consistency of of the right skill sets and the things that they should be doing on a regular basis. You know, they're coming and they'll say, how come my income's up and down and up and down and up and down? And they don't even relate it at all to the consistency of their sales, their marketing, how they're reaching out to people, how, you know, how they're asking, nothing. They, they're just, they get clueless about it. So what does that look like on your end? You come in and kind of shadow them around for a week or two or, you know, go really in depth into what their sales process is? Like, how does that, what's that look like on your end? Well, we generally bring them into our office and we sit down and work with them. Uh, we determine where it is that they want to go, why they want to get there, and then what their biggest problem is. Um, the first thing that we do is work with them as an individual about really what's going on with them as a person within the business that they're that they're coming from. Um the more you backwards engineer a, someone's problem, it's always going back to, to their, usually their own self-worth, right? Where are you making decisions from? How, like what's going on in your head when you make decisions to move the business forward? 
And the amount of decisions that people make from the, from the idea that they don't really believe that they're worth success to begin with is extraordinary to me. It's just absolutely extraordinary. So we'll help them fix that first and teach them how to make decisions based from the place that they actually believe that they're worth the success that they want and literally get into the mechanics of those decisions, right? So if it's hiring somebody and then they come from the place, well, I can't afford to hire somebody. And here, you actually can't afford not to hire somebody. Here's how you do that. And here's how you pay for it. And here's how you here's how you architect the business moving forward. So too many people treat a business like when they were an employee for someone else. And a business owner or an entrepreneur has a completely different set of values and the way that they think than the average person that works. You know, if you were raised middle class, working class, your value system is all about safety, right? And not taking too many risks and just trying to get through, you know, through your life without too many bumps in the road. Business owners got a different set of values, or they should anyway. So what would you say the top three problems are that you solve when you work with a company? And I realize it's all over the board, but typically you're not just going to be, you're not going to have one issue if you're having, having problems to the point you need to reach out for somebody. Okay. Top three problems are their, their own belief in what they feel, their own belief in their own, in their own worth around the success that they want. Right. So let just for an example, let's say a person says, I want to have a $5 million company. They don't, if they don't actually believe that they're worth a $5 million company, that it's worthy of them, they'll never get there. They want the comp, they want the success to change how they feel about themselves on the inside. So that across the board, that's like number one thing that we see. And that's hundreds of businesses over years and years and years. Salespeople too. The next one is team. They have no idea how to build team and they're not consistent in what it is that they're doing that actually works. They let outside circumstances determine whether or not they do something instead of letting the data tell them what, what it is that they should do, right? So if they have a problem, if they have an issue with money, if they have a problem with the recession, if the law changes, whatever, they're using the limits of those things in their mind to stop them from making the progress moving forward. So those are like the top three. And team is a big one. Because they, they hire what they can afford instead of, instead of hiring where they want to go. Right? Like why The idea is don't hire B and C players because that's all you can afford. You'll never get out of your own way. You have to hire A players and ramp up your game in order to pay for it. That's a good point. Yeah, and tr- I mean, A players aren't going to want to work for C leaders. No, they mm-hmm. won't. Mm-hmm. No, and they don't want to be around other other employees that are B and C either because it, they know it, they're just getting held back. Yeah, it's like when you go to the park to play basketball as a kid and the, the talent just sucks. It's like you don't want to go and play. You'd rather just pack it in and go play some Nintendo. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't hang around people that are better than you, there's no growth. You're just going backwards, period. That's just all. For sure. What's the story with the samurai sword back there? Is that what that is? <laughs> what no, is it's that? a didgeridoo. It's a didgeridoo. It ah, was, of course client it is. gave me that. They worked with in Australia and uh, they had it made for me. And an, an Aboriginal uh, made it and they, and they sent it to me as a thank you gift for their. For, for those who don't know what a didgeridoo is, what, what is its purpose? So it's a musical instrument that is from Australia. It uh, was created by the Aboriginal the Aboriginal people there, 
And the idea behind it is, is that it's supposed to be the sound of uh, the creation of uh, either Earth or the universe. I get those mixed huh. up okay. sometimes. But that's supposed to be the sound behind it. And it's uh, it's a – I can play it a little bit, but it's a, it's a, it's an interesting instrument to try to play. I imagine so. To keep the tone going, you have to do something called circular breathing. So it's inhaling while you're exhaling at the same time to keep the certain amount of air pressure moving through that tube. So did you ever play any other instruments growing up? I tried. (laughs) I tried like guitar, drums, stuff like that. That wasn't, I'm a better listener of music than a player. My kids are different than that. My kids all have that talent, but I don't. Yeah, I played I played brass growing up and when you said circular breathing it reminded me a lot of what you have to do to be able to play any kind of a wind instrument. Period. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, I feel like honestly we could spend hours just asking you about all the things that are behind you. I mean, I see a salt <laughs> lamp, I see a lava lamp, all kinds of cool stuff, but Talk a little bit about your podcast. I mean, you have a podcast that that's out there that um, people can tune into and listen to. You have, I mean, is it is it conversational in format like this, or is it you getting out and hitting a topic hard and and um, you know just basically a monologue? What does that look like, and who, who are your listeners? It, it's both. It's both. The idea what the we've been doing it since twenty seventeen, and the idea behind it was to just put out free information based on business for people that uh, they where they don't know where to look or they're not actually getting solid advice. And it was something that I just wanted to test and try and see how people responded to it. And it, and it was amazing. The results that we got from it were amazing. You have tons of people coming into what we do just by putting out that podcast. So um, it is both conversational. Uh, we, my CEO has been... In, on the pad, podcast quite a bit for about a year, but she's kind of uh, stepping back now because she's actually pretty busy. But we got a, wanted to get a bunch of stuff from her perspective, you know, on the podcast. And um, it's just all based on the idea of how do you think in order to be successful? What's the thought behind the actions, the skills, everything that you're doing to build a business? Cool. Got it. So, what do you think the biggest challenge has been for you since you've been working with coaching companies? What what's have you ever walked into one and you're just like, all right, that's it. You know, <laughs> not much I'm going to be able to do here. Fix anything. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, uh, no question. Uh, I have had sales companies come in and we sit down and talk with them and they can't, they're so steeped in uh, like more of a middle-class mindset that they cannot they cannot conceive of what it is to be bold to go out there and be bold in sales right to be bold in a conversation because all they hear is rude uh in their mind like their mother told them not to be rude they can't ask for things they have to wait till it's offered we've run into not a lot of them but they're out there they're actually out there and there's absolutely nothing we can do with them because they're just not they're not confident enough they have too many conflicting uh, beliefs and values going on. We, basically, we call it a value conflict, and it you know they they that's the reason why they're actually having the problems because they have value conflicts over what they're doing. Talk hmm. about that a little more. How do you explain value conflict? So value con- like in sales, it's interesting because 
sales is one of those things that it's needed absolutely everywhere, but it's almost like a necessary evil when you hear about it. You know, when you hear it growing up, you don't generally hear great sales stories. You know, you hear terrible sales stories. You're the slimy snake oil salesperson guy type thing. And people grow up knowing nothing about it, but they have this embedded in their mind. And then if they end up going down that road, the value that they have in, you know, deep inside of them is that sales is something that they're doing to someone, right? Mm -hmm. So they actually think that it's something wrong that's necessary. Like if I was to break it down, like what's going on inside of them, they think that it's wrong or not 100% ethical, but necessary. So we teach them it's something that they do for someone. It's not something that they do to someone. And or even uh, with, right? Because to me, yeah. very much like a dance partner. Yes, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. But the, just to just to to shift their mind, it is it is uh it's something productive that you're bringing to society. It's not something that you're trying to take from people or hurt people or scam them in any way. And I mean, we all know why it gets that name. I mean, because there's people that actually take something great like sales and they use it in a nefarious way, no question about it. But if we can get their head on right about what they're doing and they actually come from a good passion inside of themselves, they'll be excellent salespeople. Yeah. And I think it goes back a little bit to, to what you talked about before about the belief, like belief in what they are actually you know, selling or providing, like, cause if you don't have that, that's when you start to feel like you're taking, you know, from somebody versus, um, I, I don't remember the exact phrase that you just used, how you described it, but not taking something from them and, and, and doing something for them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And do you represent something that people want when they first meet you? We call it the impression of increase, right? We took that from chapter 14 of the book, the science of getting rich. It's the psychological idea that everybody's looking for something in life that will help them move forward in whatever their values are. And if you don't represent that, what ends up happening subconsciously is a person puts you into the bucket that you're just like them, and they don't think that you actually can help them move forward. So they don't see you as a person with any kind of authority in what it is that they need help with. And it becomes very difficult to create a sales relationship when they're not viewing you that way. Mm -hmm. So I know that when we were talking about having you come on, there was a lot of information around mindset and mindset shifts and things like that. Um, one of the bullets specifically was three key mindset shifts that'll double your revenue without doubling your workload. Want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about it already. So one of the first things is is to believe that you're worth the success that you want. That is an absolute necessity. That value has to match your activity in life. You got to believe that you're that you're worth it. Otherwise, you will sabotage everything that you do. Number 2 is that you have to believe that you're actually doing something good. Because if you if you again, if you've got this cross current going on where you think you're not doing something that's in harmony with good values but you have to do it, Again, that's going to that's going to stop you. And the other thing is this: what like one of the things that we'll do is we'll. It depends on, of course, like if I'm working with a company where the prices are set by the company, this might be a little bit different of a challenge. But in business, the question is: Are you charging 
what the correct value is of whatever it is that you're selling and how do you know what the value is? And can you change the people that are your ideal client to go to something that's actually a higher value instead of going to what you think is the easiest sell? So most people are underpricing the value of what it, what it is that they have. And when they change that and they change the people that they're actually selling to, where they actually will challenge themselves a little bit, they can literally double their income overnight. Is it safe to say people undervalue their own intellectual property? Yes, all the time. Like, I, like honestly, one of the things, one of the exercises, and you don't know this about me, I don't think, um, but I, I work with producers inside the insurance industry, specifically middle market producers that are looking to go from sort of that Main Street America agency where they write a lot of personal lines, some small commercial, maybe a couple of larger accounts into specifically and intentionally hunting in the middle market so that they can do exactly what you said, identify who's your ideal prospect. Is this worth my time? And I I feel like it, it seems so elementary, yet so many people don't do it. I, I want everybody to figure out what their hourly rate is. Like, what are you worth per hour? I understand self-worth and all of that, but put a number to it. Like yeah. at what point is it not make, does it not make sense for you to work on this opportunity? Number one. And then number two, stick to it. That's Don't right. compromise from that. Right. Because what I see, and I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that you probably see some of the same, if not a lot of the same is you might get somebody to give you a business plan and you might get somebody to identify who their ideal prospect is. And you may even be able to get them to commit to the behaviors they have to do on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis to hit their numbers, but they don't do it. Like they identify everything and then they're not disciplined enough to follow it through to execution or production pressures, get them tempted to take the things they shouldn't take. Like they know they shouldn't go after this account, but this one's sitting right here. It's really easy. All I have to do is take the phone call and and next thing you know, yeah, it was easy to write, but it's horrible to keep. They're a service nightmare. They constantly have the same questions over and over again. They require a ton of certificates of insurance to be issued and all of that. When in reality, we knew all of that on the front end. We didn't stick to our guns because we felt like this was an easier and a better way. And you know that's chronic in our industry. Yeah, by and well, it's large. chronic in almost every industry, to be honest with you. The cheapest client's the worst client. I mean, that's Mm-hmm. That's very well known. And we do that with every business person that we work with. We put them through that exercise of what their hourly work, what is their hourly pay worth? Because um, if they don't know that, they don't know where they're making decisions from as far as what, what is worth their time from a monetary perspective. And that's a big deal. Absolutely. I mean, to me, it's common sense. If your hourly rate's $500 an hour, don't do anything that doesn't pay you $500 an hour. Unless it's a conscious decision. Now, granted, I'm not going to go look at volunteering at a food kitchen or a shelter or something like that and say, oh, no, I can't give back to the community because it doesn't pay me $5 an hour. So before all the jaded people out there think that's what I'm talking about, that's not the case. It's more along the lines of, you know that you should be writing accounts that are going to pay you on average, $500 an hour for the amount of time you spend on it in an annual basis. Don't put anything other than that in your pipeline. Like it's really that simple. And and I mean, I look at some of the books that I find that most people think 
are the most impactful that they've read. And one of those is Atomic Habits by James Clear, right? Very, very impactful book. It's all common sense, though. Like, here's a guy that basically memorialized common sense and put a put it into book format and sent it out to everybody. If you need to read more, have a book sitting someplace. You're going to start your day so that when you, you know, when you go to roll over and shut your alarm off, your hand hits the book, you know, it's time for you to sit up and read for 10 minutes or whatever you set your goal to be. It's just, it, it blows my mind to think how easy it is, yet how difficult we make things. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. It's the, the, follow, the follow through and the, the accountability aspect of it. I, I mean, like if you don't have somebody that's, you know, holding you accountable for the stuff that you want to accomplish, definitely, definitely makes it tougher. But that doesn't yeah, resonate yeah. with me, right? Because we're in an industry where literally if I wanted to work as hard as I possibly could work and wanted to go out and bring in a million dollars in commissions a year, that's 100% in my hands. I have the oh, ability yeah. to go do that, right? But- Am I going to go do that? Well, no, at this season of my career, I'm not, not because I'm not motivated, not because I'm not capable. It's because my season of life is different. I sit in a different seat. I get more done by operating through multiple people to go get that result than I would if I go do it myself as the leader of an organization. I can't go produce the entire top line for the organization. It would be horrible. And I would also at some point get a little bit disgruntled that I was the one that was bringing the revenue on yet. I was doing it so I could support a bunch of other people. Right. So I, I just, I think that there, there's so many, we, we're just not honest with ourselves as to where we're at, what we're capable of, what we should be doing. And it all goes back to the same thing I say over and over again. The whole reason I got into the insurance industry specifically is because the guy who recruited me to come in told me it was full of average people. It's full of C players. If you want to dominate and you think you're an A player, come to the insurance industry. We're full of C's and you're going to be able to dominate. And guess what? He was right. Yeah. Yeah. There's another phenomenon that's very interesting, and that's that the average individual will not out earn their family's permission for income. In other words, wherever the family is, however they were raised, because you, there's this whole idea of they have what I call a financial set point in their head. It's based on the idea of what they need in life, not what they want, not going after the big thing that they want. And you, what happens is that you'll see them set this big goal for themselves and they'll start to go up and all of a sudden they'll come back down again because subconsciously they've got a set point that always brings them down to the place that they feel most comfortable and not rejected by their family. The idea is that they know there is some switch in a person's mind. If they start to get to the place where their family is going to see them as wealthy, they know the kind of pushback they're going to get around it. And they don't want to be judged by it. And we see that all the time, over and over. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think that's definitely a very real thing. I think, um, having lived it, I think it's an extremely real thing. You know, I think the other problem, too, is we could go the other way with it. And, and it's what gets a lot of younger people in trouble. And that's the fact, you know, it, it took our parents a couple of decades at a bare minimum, you know, to get to where they're at. And we think we need to try and accomplish that same thing in half or a third of the time. And that it's just not feasible. And so that's where you see the debt epidemic happen, where people are running up their, their credit cards and everything, trying to obtain stuff. So that, that because stuff is tangible, stuff is what society thinks um, makes us successful and all of that. 
But, you know, I'm a big believer. I've never had the issue with stopping because I get to a point that's at or above how I was raised. That's never been an issue for me. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, It's because I visualize every single day and I do it very, very specifically. Like I know exactly what I want, what my goal is. Here's what's tied to it. Like I put a thing up uh, on LinkedIn and in Facebook, probably Twitter too, a couple of weeks ago about a very specific home in Key West that I'm going to have. I'm going to buy it. I like, I know when I hit the number, I know the number, I know what I have to do to hit it. And when I hit it, I'm going to buy the home. And people said, oh, well, that's nice. Is that an example or is it that exact house? I said, no, it's that exact house. The owner just doesn't know it yet. I'm going to buy that house. That's the house I want. You know, and, and I mean, even when, even if you take it and you reduce it down, I, you know, when I, the Holy Grail in our industry, you know, at least is the first major, major stepping stone, I think, is you get your book to a million dollars in commissions a year. Like if you can get to a million bucks in commissions to your agency a year, you're best in class at that point in, in our world that we live in. And so I set myself a very, very specific goal. I knew that a lot of people would say, I'm going to get myself a watch. And when I get to a million bucks, I'm going to get myself a nice watch. I didn't want just a nice watch. I wanted a nice watch that other people didn't have. And I wanted something that people would have to ask me what it was so that I could talk. And it becomes a good conversational point. And I got my eyes set on a Cartier Roadster, but not just any Cartier Roadster. I wanted the 100th anniversary edition with the blue face. And I knew about that every day when I woke up, what do I have to do to get closer to that? And when I get that goal done, I cross it off the list and I go on to the next one and I go on to the next one and I go on to the next one. And I think that's really what has kept me sort of with the blinders on to not catch the noise from the left and the right. Cause I get plenty of it thrown at me by my family and otherwise, Yeah, but I don't care. That has nothing to do with what's best for me and what's best for my my wife and my children. Okay. I look at it this way. My parents had the opportunity to raise us. I have no knock whatsoever on what they did to provide for us, how hard they had to work, what we were able to achieve. But if my goal in life was to match that, I'm a loser from the beginning, in my opinion. I don't want to just have that. I want to get better because I should be able to. I have different tools. I have different educational skill set. I have all these things that allow me to do that. And I think it's a really bad thing that there are. And I look at this from a parental standpoint, having my own kids. I don't ever want my kids to be held back because I want less for them than they want for themselves. What kind of idiotic thought process is that in all reality? It's mm-hmm. that's that's not somebody who's unselfish that truly wants the best for their family. That's somebody who's jealous and they don't want somebody to be more successful than them. And that's just nuts to me. I can't I can't wrap my head around that. But I hear that a lot in the insurance yeah. industry is really bad for it specifically because a lot of the agencies out there are second, third, fourth generation family name on the outside. And that's a whole different dynamic than what you're going to find in a lot of other places. Yeah, well, there's a lot of families out there that raise kids and send the message to them that it's not okay to out-earn them, you know, that like there's a lot of parents, uh, I see this more with men than I do with women, but the idea of out-earning dad, like there's something mortally wrong with it or something, you know, and it's, I mean, that's just insecurity, you know, so 
It's bizarre. I've never even thought about that. Well, I like, hate to bring up the cheesy example, but look at the movie Rudy, right? The guy was trying to go make it at Notre Dame and his family that were the, the steel workers all told him what he wasn't capable of doing. Didn't right. believe he was ever trying out. Did, and see, I think that there's a subset of the population, and I'm certainly fit into that, where when people tell you that you're not capable or you're not good enough or whatever else, all you did was fill my tank with sutra ultra, super ultra premium gas, period. Like that right. is going to do nothing except guarantee that I not only achieve that goal, but surpass it and move on to the next one. But I think there's a lot of people that aren't wired that way. Way more people who aren't wired that way than who are. And I think that, um, you know, it's just something that I, I just think it's honestly interesting that it even came up in conversation because I don't think that a lot of people would ever even have thought of that. But as you think through that and you think through left-handed remarks that are made over certain things, you know, like I can tell you an example with my own family. Um, we bought we bought my wife a new Infiniti QX80. It's a nice car. It's a hundred thousand dollar SUV. Okay. Yeah. I'm not saying that to brag about it. I'm saying that because that's how much it costs. You could go look it up online if I didn't tell you, but it's what she wanted. And as her husband, I get joy out of giving her what she wants. Yeah. Now, if my oldest son, who also works in the agency, were to have a family of his own, and he decided that he wanted to go get a, a really, really nice one of the new Cadillac Escalades that's 160, 180,000 with the supercharged V8, all of that other stuff, almost double the price of the car. Am I going to hold it against him? You know, that, that he went out and did that? No, not if he can afford it. I mean, yeah. I might have some questions if he's leveraging himself to buy it just to buy it. <laughs> right. But I mean, if he could afford it and all things considered equal, I'm not going to have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side, my daughter goes out to my parents' house to have dinner one night. And she asks my mom about whether or not she knew we had gotten a new car because they were out of town for a couple of weeks. It, ironically, it, their place in St. John, like they're not hurting. Yeah. Okay. And so she says, no, um, I, I was not aware that mommy and daddy got a new car, which I'm 50 years old. I don't have to ask my parents permission to buy a new car, <laughs> right? I don't have to. But what where I'm going with this is what came next. Caroline was excited because this vehicle has the screens and the headrests so that her and her brother, instead of fighting, can put on headphones and each watch whatever they want to watch to entertain them. Should we go on a long road trip? which we rarely do. Our road trips yeah. typically last an hour to an hour and a half to go to Orlando or Sarasota. It's not piling everybody in the station wagon like when I was a kid. So she was all excited to say that. And so she comes home and she tells me that she had this conversation. He said, and she said, in the, the, you know, when I told mama about the, the screens in the back of the headrest, she said, well, we didn't have stuff like that when your daddy was a kid. We didn't, we didn't have to have all of that. And I, I just very calmly said, well, Caroline, the other part of that is that technology didn't exist back then. So, right. I mean, it, you it know, damn well, if it did, you would have had those because no, we, pro we probably wouldn't have. And it would have been held against me that I have it now. I mean, and that's really that's really where the whole thing, how the whole thing goes. So I see this. I see this all the time. It happens between siblings. It happens between parents and kids. I mean, it's just it's nuts. And I think it's something that, you know, you definitely if you're in a high earning, high potential earning career, it's something you probably need to get your head around pretty quick totally. and think about how you're going to deal with it because it could really mess you up in the head if you're not careful.
That that's absolutely correct. We see it all the time, all the time. What I would not hit on man. The other thing is the people that don't know that they're make that they're actually suffering from that. That they don't have that. Correct. They don't realize they have the issue, and they're making decisions from the place that they don't want to piss off their parents because of how much that they're actually earning. They will self sabotage all the time. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I've made very certain that my kids understand that that will never be held over their head ever. Period. That's awesome. I I don't want that to happen. I want them to go out. I I hope look, I'm that's the interesting thing about being a parent. If your child is more successful than you are, you actually get credit for that. Right. Because you've done your job, you help them them get to where they are. Right. (laughs) Right. If, If I never want anybody to get past me, I'm basically just running on a treadmill. That's it. So yeah. well, listen, we got, uh, we're, we need to go ahead and wrap up because we've been going for a while. What have we missed that you wanted to get out before we, we, uh, we hit it, man. Thank you so much. It was great being here. Absolutely. Tell them where to find your podcast, the successful mind podcast. It's on all podcast, uh, stations and, um, just, it doesn't cost anything. Just go ahead and listen and hope you get something from it. Cool. And- Listen, he's downplaying this, people. This guy's had millions of downloads on that podcast. It's a very highly ranked podcast. So we probably brought him down a little bit by having him talk to us today. So take that into consideration when you when when you think about you know the next podcast you're gonna add to your library. I'm definitely gonna check it out. I don't listen to enough podcasts. And I mean, I'm one of these people who's constantly looking at ways to get more into my head during the times that I'm awake and multitasking. And that's one of the areas where I just forget to put in earbuds when I'm cutting the grass or whatever else. And I could be really getting a lot more out of my time than, than what I am. So I thank you for coming on today, David. It's been a really good conversation. I think, you know, I think it's, we ended really strong, man. I think yeah. through just the family dynamics and stuff yeah. and all of that. That's something people that are listening, you, you need to think through those things because whether you realize it, it's eating at you or not, it likely is. And I would just sit back. If there's one thing that I would say the overarching theme of this entire conversation, it's self-assessment and self-awareness and understanding where you're at in the grand scheme of things. And the execution piece of that is not being afraid to ask for help or a resource. How many times did you say you had a mentor? Every one of us has a mentor, industry uh, specific or just a life coach in some cases. It doesn't matter, but it's healthy to have people that you can bounce things off of that are going to be non-biased and not just tell you what what you want to hear, but tell you what you need to hear. So thanks for coming on and spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. We look forward to uh, releasing this one really soon and we'll be in touch. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Uh, See you. Bye. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.